If God has named you out to salvation, you cannot stop him. He will save you. And if you're opposed to it, he will overcome you. And yet where there are people uh, opposing the spread of the gospel into nations, God will still go there. God will send his missionaries and his evangelists however he pleases. Do you love the gospel? As we think about the gospel and as we think about, of course, uh, all of Christian theology and uh, understanding, something that is entirely central, fundamental and vital to every area of our understanding, as well as every area of our obedience, is the understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. This morning, we've, taken, we've finished up our exposition of the book of Mark, and before we jump into another thing, uh, another series, we are going to take a few Sundays where we're going to be expounding on and really digging into the doctrine of uh, the Trinity on, uh, tangentially, but more specifically, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, how God in the third person mediates the blessings of the gospel to us, and how we can expect that to come about in, uh, in, our, uh, in our gifting, in our empowering, in our sanctification, in our regeneration, and all of those other things as he applies to us that which the Lord Jesus Christ has purchased for us by his blood. So I don't have a passage particularly for you to go to today that we're going to go line by line through as we normally would, but we're going to have a short period of of topical study as we go through the entire Bible over three weeks uh, in different and diverse ways and find all sorts of truths about the third person of the Holy Spirit, uh, the third person of the Trinity, who is the Holy Spirit. In history, in Christian history, uh, the, 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 do- the doctrine of the Trinity has been defined for us through such creeds as the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed, uh, in, in, as well as the, uh, uh, another one. But these ones speak specifically of the Holy Spirit. Allow me to uh, uh, recite to you a, little, a few lines from each of them about what our forefathers in the faith, remember, we want to be biblically, biblically grounded, but we are not biblicists. That means that while we, as uh, Bunyan said, you, you bleed Bibline, our blood type here at Reformed Baptist Church is Bibline, right? It's Bible in our veins, it's Bible in our heart. And yet, we understand that such things as the London Baptist Confession, as well as historical creeds, are helpful guides to us. They are gifts to us that God has developed and given through history. So we're also historical theologians. We thank God for what he's taught us through the past, And in that sense, we go to the Apostles' Creed, which says very briefly, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. We do believe in him. The Nicene Creed says, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. The Athanasian Creed says, Among a large list of Trinitarian statements, it says that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons together nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is a distinct person, and that of the Holy Spirit is still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal their majesty, co-eternal. Amen? So when we think about worshiping, as the Athanasian Creed just said, we worship God in Trinity and in unity. Many of us will be comfortable with the idea of worshiping the Father. We would be very aware of the fact that we worship the Lord Jesus. We might be a little bit less familiar, or maybe because of our backgrounds, uh, we're less comfortable with the idea of worshiping the Holy Spirit. 
or the language of worshipping in the Holy Spirit. And yet this is something that is clear to us through both Christian history and biblical doctrine is that himself being God, the Holy Spirit is worthy himself of being worshipped. But there's distinctions, isn't there? We do worship them in slightly different ways. Uh, We think of the Father as the great fountainhead and source of all salvation and grace. We think of the Son as the mediator between God and man who brings to us and achieves for us God's grace and love. And then we think of the Holy Spirit as the one who comes and and applies it to us, and we worship him that he is our our current helper in our state and in our current moments. (coughs) So there are distinctions, and there are whole books of how we commune with God in his triunity. I would recommend to you John Owen. He's an easy reader. It's uh, This is like low level. If you want to jump into the Puritan somewhere really easy, pick up John Owen book. Anybody, I can tell how many of you haven't because none of you are laughing. He's super hard. He just expects you to know Latin. Puts a paragraph in Latin, moves on to the next point. Anyway, but go and jump. Find a, a Puritan paperback, an easy, ver- an easy reader version of John Owen, communion with the triune God. We have these, uh, this understanding of how we commune with him. <clears throat> and yet today we're going to understand that we ought to worship the Holy Spirit by thinking about him and praising him as both a distinct person and... God. He is a distinct person from the Father and the Son, and yet he is truly God by nature. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Certain cults who believe uh, uh, that the Holy Spirit is an it. He is nothing more than a power or a force. Or there are other cults and uh, non-Christian churches that will claim to be churches who will speak of the Holy Spirit as being just one of the three manifestations or modes of manifestation that God, the one person, appears in. We're going to pull those apart and see how the scripture, in fact, speaks against those understandings. So first of all, we're going to see that he is distinct from the Father and the Son. You can go to these passages if you wish. They will not be behind me. If you're a quick scroller or you know your way around the Bible, then I invite you along, but I will be reading in fairly quick succession. In Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, a very very well-known verse. The prophet Isaiah speaks of the coming redeemer, the coming chosen one, the servant. And he prophesies him as saying, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to to bring good news to the poor. What we see here is three persons listed. Well, in fact, you can find four personal uh, nouns there. There's the Spirit of the Lord God. There is the Lord God, who is otherwise the Lord, and who has anointed me, that's the third person, and then bringing the good news to the poor. No insult intended, in brackets, large insult intended. You're the poor. You are the poor in spirit. We are the needy, weak, disgusting, defiled, impoverished sinners who need God's grace. And in his prophecy, God has foretold that one is coming who will have the Holy Spirit sent by God to bring us good news, otherwise translated as gospel. God is sending gospel grace to you sinners. That's good news. And in the prophecy of it, we see the the three distinct persons of of those who who send, who come, and who anoint. We see the Lord God, we see the Spirit of the Lord God, and we see the me, the person who is talking, the Redeemer, the Messenger. We need to understand of Scripture 
that it is progressive. This is what we call progressive revelation. It did not just all appear out of thin air uh, in the New Testament days. It didn't, it didn't from Genesis to Revelation appear in the hands of Moses uh, like a scratchy card. And as each age went by, they scratched out a little bit more. No, it has is, it is progressively been delivered by God in many different ways through many different type of uh, scripture authors. But what we understand about that is that that necessarily implies that doctrine or theology or rather our understanding of divine truth in Scripture, has also been historically progressive. Not every doctrine that we find in the Bible that we might open up by our systematic theology to understand, not every one of those doctrines was revealed in the same clarity at the same point throughout history. In fact, even once the Bible was finished, not every doctrine had been understood to its full clarity. That's why we have later developments such as the historical creeds and confessions. That was expected by God, that he would give to us uh, the Bible finished in its own culture and atmosphere and by its own authors with the full expectation that according to Paul's command to Timothy, we would study it, we would develop its understanding, we would make distinctions, we would say this means that and we deny that it means this and therefore we come to an understanding like the doctrine of the Trinity. The T word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible, unless you got one with the creeds and confessions in the back. It's nowhere in the Bible itself, but the doctrine, the truth, the, the positive affirmations and the negative uh, 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 distinctions are definitely to be found in the Word. So in other words, we expect, because Scripture is progressively revealed throughout history, now finished, doctrines also have been progressive. And this means that while we can go to the Old Testament to see clues of the Trinity, we can understand because God is the divine author, there will never be anything in the Word that, that contradicts itself. We'll never go to the Old Testament and find something that contradicts the Trinity because they didn't understand the Trinity then, because God was the author over it all, keeping the doctrine pure. Yet we can go to the Old Testament and find clues, like this one in Isaiah 61, where we see three distinct persons who are all involved in this coming of our salvation to the, to the spiritually poor. So again, verse 1 of Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, the Savior, that will be Jesus, because the Lord, that is a distinct third person, has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Father, Son, and Spirit, I won't say clearly revealed there and yet alluded to quite, uh, we might call it clearly implicit now that we have the advantage of the New Testament and church history. The next one we can look at is Isaiah 48 verse 16. Not a whole lot of, of, of pages to flick if you want to go there. Isaiah 48 verse 16. And towards the end of that verse, it says, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Now, I know that I, I really rag on pastors who will, who will read, especially Old Testament verses, completely devoid of their context. But we, don't, we just don't have time to do Isaiah 48, let alone the whole book. So you're going to allow me to just read a portion of a verse. The Lord, has sent, the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. This, this verse is shrouded in Old Testament situation. Of course, it is God alluding to Cyrus, one of the, king, the enemy kings that he'll bring against his people to bring about his own purposes. Of course, there's also uh, the, the mystery that we find in all prophetic writings that, that the clarity is not clear until New Testament fulfillment. And yet, this is a reference in a prophetic 
forward-looking to the coming Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, we see the three distinct persons. Do you see? Now the Lord God, that is the Father, has sent me, who will be Jesus, and his Spirit. Modalism, or in the more his, the, the ancient version of the heresy, Sabellianism, after a fellow by the name of Sabellius. Modalism, Sabellianism, teaches that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are not three distinct persons. There's just one God, which we agree with, and there is only one person subsisting in God. That we disagree with. They will then say that the, 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 the Trinity is, is not, in fact, three persons, one God, in fact, they won't use the language of the Trinity unless they're trying to trick you, which they do. They will teach that God has manifested himself as Father in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit in our now church age, and the Son was revealed in that time when he was incarnate for our salvation, but they're all the same person wearing different masks, changing hats. As this verse is even in the Old Testament showing to us that there is a distinction between the Lord God, the sent one, and the Spirit. The Lord God has sent me and his spirit. The spirit is not just the shadow of the sun. It is not just the, the feeling of the sun, the soul of the sun. He is his own distinct person. The Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Here's a um, statement that I've pulled from a, a statement of faith of a oneness Pentecostal church. That is the, the, uh, uh, the, the Unitarians, we call them. Right? They, they don't believe in the Trinity. There is only one God and one person. They say, see if you can pick it out. There is one God. Amen? Who has revealed himself as Father. Amen? You're being careful, aren't you? You don't want to amen the wrong thing. I'll stop lest you're struck down with accidental blasphemy. Through his Son in redemption and as the Holy Spirit by emanation. Now, I would forgive you if you amen any of that because in classic cult false teaching formula, they're not clear about what they believe. They intentionally try and veil it under a blanket of, of, of vagueness so that people go in, don't even understand what is being taught in a court, ensnared, Paul says in, in First and Second Timothy, trapped by false teaching to the condemnation and destruction of their souls. If they were clearer and more honest like they used to be, they would have said that there is one God and one person who has revealed himself in different modes of Father, then through his Son in redemption, and then through the Holy Spirit by emanation. So be careful out there. Be careful out there of the Unitarians. Isaiah 48 verse 16 shows us they are not the same person, they are distinct. But we're going to go further now. We're going to find ourselves in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 3 verse 16 and 17. Matthew chapter 3 Verse 16 and 17. This is the scene when Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized. They have a little verbal wrestle in the water. Jesus wants to be baptized in obedience to a prophet's command. The prophet himself is confused that the Messiah would need the baptism of repentance. But Jesus prevails. John submits. He was baptized. Verse 16 reads, And when Jesus was baptized... Immediately, he went out of the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove, not as a dove, not in the form of a dove, not manifested as a dove. I'm sorry if you watched those Jesus movies as a kid and you thought it was a small white flapping bird coming down. It was as a dove, the sign of peace. Just as Noah opened the window, a dove went out, 
found its resting place to show that God's wrath had ended. So now the Spirit of God comes and does not touch down and then leave again, but rests on Jesus as the sign of peace. Here is the one whom the Spirit can dwell with, can carry away. The heavens were open to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. One of my aims as a preacher is to be able to read that verse, that last phrase of the Father, in a much deeper voice than I read normally. I'll get there when I'm old, I trust. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I've heard it said by, uh, by preachers, if, if what we have here is a modalistic God, one God, one person, that just through different times in history, pictures himself, wears different hats or masks as the Father, Son, and Spirit. You've got him changing hats pretty quick in this scene. He's speaking from heaven, coming down as the Holy Spirit, and is in the water as the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a Trinitarian verse that we see. It's not all being explained for us, and yet we understand that by the time the apostles go to write down the history of the Lord Jesus, the teaching of the Lord Jesus, the letters that they write to each other, underneath and behind and over all of their theological assumptions is an understanding of the Trinity. So here we see the distinction. The Spirit is not the Father, is not the Son, is not uh, uh, something else, but is distinct from both the Father and the Son. So now we're going to see, not only is he distinct, but he also has a personality. Right? He is his own person. That is that we should not refer to him as it, the Holy Spirit is not an object or merely a force, as some cults will teach, but he should be worshipped, related to, and thought of as a distinct person to whom we relate. So, first of all, we can go to John chapter 16. This is under the first category of, of him being given personal pronouns in the New Testament. Personal pronouns in the Greek. John chapter 16, verse 7 and 8. John chapter 16, verse 7 and 8, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. He's speaking to his disciples in the upper room before his crucifixion. He tells them, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. The Greek word autos, the language of himself, a language of self, a personhood. I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. And so he goes on. Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit as having a personal nature. He is a person to be referred to, related to, received, welcomed, spoken to. The same as in Romans 8 verse 26. Romans 8 verse 26. Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we ought to praise we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is, again, the Greek word autos, the, the, the personal language of he himself is interceding for us. The very next verse, verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We again see three different parties there. The saints, God, and the Spirit who is interceding between us. The Spirit is spoken of as a person doing that work. The next thing we see under the, under the idea of him being a person is the fact that he, does, he has tasks or he does actions or he is given characteristics 
that only makes sense if he is, in fact, a distinct person. So in other words, we can see that he, has, uh, he conducts intelligible teaching, intelligent, understandable teaching to other persons. In John 14, verse 26, Jesus says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have to you. He's not simply bringing to remembrance by way of a memory tea or by way of some kind of, uh, of psychological trigger. He is not simply a force like that. He is, in fact, a person because we're not just told that he will cause you to remember, but that he will do so by teaching the apostles. He will be, that, that is something that can only take place between one intelligent mind to another intelligent mind. Anything with an intelligent mind is, by nature, a person. So he's spoken of as being a person. John 15, 26, exactly a chapter later, Jesus says similarly, when the Holy Spirit comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he, personal language, echienos, will bear witness about me. He's bearing witness. This is another thing that only a human, uh, not a human, rather, mind me, keep your, 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 your heretic killing stones in your pockets. Not, not a human, but a person. We need to understand that there is, in fact, a distinction between a person and human. All humans are persons. Even single-cell zygotes in the mother's womb are persons worthy of life and protection. All, all humans are persons. Not all persons are human. When we talk in theological language of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit being persons, we mean this, that they have a personhood, a personality, that they are not objects. We're not saying that they are humans. Common misunderstanding. Thirdly, we see uh, uh, under this language of him being personal, uh, we see that he does another thing, as we read before in Romans 8.26, which is only able to be done between two minds, is that he intercedes. He is interceding, Romans 8.26 tells us, between the Father, or God, and the saints. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This language of interceding, in fact, is not just two parties, but three parties. The two parties that need to be uh, uh, mediated or interceded for, and the, the, the third party who is in between doing the intercession. The Spirit, us, and God himself are being related to in this way through intercession. That is something that only a person can do. Fifth, uh, uh, nextly, we can see also that the Holy Spirit is said to have, to have offense. He can be offended and grieved. First place we'll see this is Isaiah chapter 63, verse 10. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 10. It reads like this. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy. Other versions might have offended his Holy Spirit. This is very similar to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, which tell us, Do not be grieved by, uh, sorry, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I don't know what your spiritualist or hippie friends tell you, but you can't offend the wind. You can't actually grieve nature. You can't annoy a rock. No ancestral worship going on here. No, 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 no American Indian theology finding its way in here. 
No dream time ideas finding its way in the Bible. You can't grieve a rock or the wind or some inanimate object. You can only grieve or offend a person. And so the Holy Spirit is pictured to us in the Bible. The, the next one, Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 5 verse 3 shows us the scene where coming into the, the, the gathering of the early church, Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira decide that they are, just like the other Christians, they're going to bring their offering but unlike the other Christians, they're going to deceptively pretend they're giving everything that they made from the sale of their property while they are lying because they are, in fact, keeping some back. That was totally within their prerogative. They could have kept some and given others, but they wanted the reputation. They wanted to rise to preeminence in the church as being those who gave it all. We see this scene play out in Acts chapter 5. In verse 3, it says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And then he says to his uh, uh, Sapphira, Ananias' wife, down a little bit further, she was out of the room, doing her makeup, and then she comes in, wanted to look good. But in fact, she was struck dead as he says, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? She also dropped dead. They were both carried out and buried. The idea is that we can grieve and offend, but also lie to the Holy Spirit, just explicitly put there by Peter. You cannot lie to the rock, the carpet, or a wall. To lie to somebody is to communicate in a false way intentionally, and that can only be done to a person. Showing here that the Holy Spirit is very clearly possessing of those personal attributes. So, through, through the language that the New Testament uses of he, himself, personal pronouns, through his ability to teach, through his intercession, through his bearing witness, through his being offended and his being lied to, we see that he is a person. And he is a distinct person from the Father and the Son. But I want to take a closer look at some of the verses we've already touched on to show that Jesus, uh, and some others, to show that the Holy Spirit is not just a distinct person, but is in fact a divine, distinct person, sharing in every attribute the same nature and substance as the Father and the Son. So go to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, this will be a familiar verse. The great commission of the Lord Jesus, resurrected and enthroned, about to be enthroned, commissioning his church to go out and preach the gospel. He says, Matthew 28, verse 19, uh, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What we see here in this Trinitarian formula or this, uh, this, this baptism language of being baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is that there is one divine name. Do you see in the language that he doesn't say, baptize them in the name of the Father, and also the name of the Son, and also the name of the Spirit. And yet, there are three names. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All we see is that there is, they are being given one divine name. One name that refers to their, their being, their nature, their essence. There is one God. And yet within that one God, subsisting under the surface, within that one God, there are three distinct persons that are not 
each one-third God. We do not believe, do not think that there is a, a third of the divine being in the Spirit, a third of the divine being in the Son, and a third of the divine being in the Father, but rather they all exhaust the divine attributes. The divine perfections entirely fill and equally fill all members of the Trinity. And so there is one name because they are one being, one nature, one essence. And yet, there are three personal names, Father, Son, and Spirit. The only distinction between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is their fatherhood, sonship, and spiritness, or procession. The distinction, the difference is not nature, is not being, is not what makes them up. It's not their essence. It's simply the fact of identity, their person. That is the only distinction between them. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 4 through 6. This is one example, one example of the New Testament, where in speaking of Christian theology, Paul very frequently will use language of something that relates to God, something that relates to the Lord, and something that relates to the Holy Spirit. We'll see in future weeks that this is all over the New Testament epistles. But this is a good example for us in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, and six, 4 through 6. In speaking of the, the spiritual gifts that are endowed upon the church for the mission, Paul, in speaking of the unity and the fact that they don't come from different, different places, the gifts, the baptism we share, the unity of ours is all in the one God. Listen to the way he argues that. He says, there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everybody. Now, he could have used the, the word God in there, couldn't he? He could have just said, variety of gifts, but the same Yahweh. Variety of services, but the same Yahweh. Variety of activities, but the same Yahweh who empowers them all. But in, by, and he would be communicating, these all come from the one God. But he can communicate that same thing. They all come from the one God, which is absolutely his point. And yet he'll give them different names. He'll speak of the Spirit, the Lord, which is New Testament language for Jesus, our Master, and God, which is New Testament language for the Father. So we see here a Trinitarian formula. They all come from the same being from the Spirit and the Son and the Father. That is the unity that he is attributing. You can see how it would be entirely blasphemous to say this. There are varieties of gifts, but the same angels. A varieties of service, but the same Lord, Messiah, Jesus. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God, the Father. You would never in Paul's epistles, link together so closely in these, in these same brackets, the angels and the Son and the Father. You would never do that with somebody who is not equal in standing with the Son and the Father. So by speaking this way, he is clearly communicating that the Spirit is able to be spoken of in the same breath as the Father and the Son. He is divine God, exhaustively God in nature and essence. Go now to uh, Acts chapter 5, where we were just before. Acts chapter 5. Actually, no, not there yet. We'll get there. But go first to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, this beautiful Trinitarian doxology, 
Paul says, in the same kind of formula that he's just spoken in 1 Corinthians, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He's speaking in the same uh, uh, way about the, the Lord Jesus, who is the eternal Son, God, who is the eternal Father, and the Holy Spirit, who is the eternal divine third person of the Trinity. Think again how inappropriate it would be to use that language if the Holy Spirit was not God. It would be similar to including another person. Now, we've already proved he is distinct. He is a person. But if he's not God, it would sound similar. It would be just as appropriate to throw Gabriel's name in there. Think of it this way. May the love of, or, or, or Paul, may the love of Paul and the grace of God and the fellowship of Gabriel be with you all. See how inappropriate that is and how, how, how un, uh, that, that is never seen done in the New Testament. Rather, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, usually named as Holy Spirit, God, and the Lord, are clumped together in this way because they deserve common, equal worship and respect. Now go to Acts chapter 5. As you're going there, Acts chapter 5, same verses as before, verse 3 and 4. What you'll, what you'll recognize is we don't, in line with what I said before about progressive revelation, we're not able to simply go to 3 Peter chapter 1 and open up about a clear uh, uh, explanation and theological treatise on the, the doctrine of the Trinity or the personhood and the, and the distinction and the divinity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, James White says it this way, that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the distinct personhood of the divine Son and Holy Spirit, along with uh, uh, the Father, is something that is revealed in between the Testaments. It was revealed in between the Testaments. That is, through the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus and the teaching of the apostles being taught by the Holy Spirit, that's when it was revealed. And it is, in fact, after that, historically, that they start writing everything down and sending their letters and writing down the ministry of the Lord Jesus and the four Gospels, so that by the time they're writing, they are already assuming the Trinity. And that's what we see underneath all of the New Testament theology and writings is an assumed understanding of the distinct personhood of the divine, holy Trinity. Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. In the same scene... Ananias has lied to the church and to the Holy Spirit to try and earn for himself standing in the church. And Peter says in verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So who is he lying to? The Holy Spirit. Verse 4, he says at the end of verse 4, you have not lied to man but to God. Right there in Peter's language, he is seeing clearly that the Holy Spirit is divine. He is God. Not only from before can we argue that he is a person who can be lied to, but he is God. It is as appropriate to lie to the Holy Spirit as it is to lie to the face of Jesus, as Judas did, or to lie to the face of the Father himself. That is as inappropriate, blasphemous, and sinful because the Holy Spirit himself is eternally, equally God. And so this starts affecting, as we close up here, ready for 
for next week and the, and the following weeks in our study of how, what the Holy Spirit's role is in redemption and salvation and our obedience and sanctification. As we close up today on his personhood, his distinction, his divinity, it needs to affect our worship. We can get in very, very easy ruts of thinking, as we said before, of the Holy Spirit. We might theologically agree that he is a person when asked, and yet treat him, relate to him as an it. We might even speak of him as an it, as a thing that can be sent down from heaven for some kind of work among us. We need to not speak insultingly of him as an it, but refer to him as a person, a him. But also we need to relate to him, and in our Christian walk and congregational worship, avoid an understanding about him or an assumption of him that is automatic. Much like when you, when you walk into the, the shopping center and you step on the weighted mat and the doors automatically open and automatically close behind you. And you take some steps forward towards the escalator and you step on it and it automatically takes you up to the next level. And you go through the shopping center and as you walk in through the security doors, they automatically will pick up whether you are walking in or out with something that is unpaid for. And as you place things over a, a barcode reader, it will automatically register in the system as to how much it is worth and what is demanded of you. As you tap your phone or your card, and some of you use cash, I don't know, sign your check, do whatever you do, that you, might, that you will automatically see a transfer of funds and you walk out expecting fully that everything, without really an intention and despite your frame of mind, all things will go on accordingly as expected as designed. When is the last time that you went to pay for something? Maybe your groceries, maybe something at the, the auto shop. You put the spark plugs, you put the fruit and vegetables on the, on the, on, on the, on the, the till. You pull out your money in the, the cashier or the annoying machine that always yells at you, take item out of bagging area. It says to you, we cannot serve you in your current state of mind. You're grieved against a brother. It's inappropriate for you to purchase this. When's the last time your card declined probably yesterday, maybe, some of us. When's the last time your card declined because you did not place it in the right frame of heart? Because you've got unrepentant sin that you're dealing with and therefore the doors to the shop didn't open. The, the scanners went off. The, there, is, there, is, there is no way that that's happening because our world is designed and we're in the frame of thinking that things happen automatically and if they don't, there's a button to press to call somebody to our help. We must avoid all types of thinking that walking into the, the doors of the church or into the space of congregational worship with the Holy Spirit, as we wake in the morning and seek to do the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, obeying the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives, we must never assume and think that the Holy Spirit is at our beck and call much like an automatic door or escalator that he will take us where we ought to do because we're doing the certain thing that it's supposed to trigger something in him. I came in, I sat down, they read the Bible, there's a preacher up there, give me the blessings that are owed to me, Lord God, let it fall down immediately, automatically, I'll go out from here and start utilizing all those things that were given to me so automatically. But rather, when we understand that we are coming in in a way that the Holy Spirit, yes, deals with us congregationally and covenantally as a people and a family and a body, and yet he's dealing with us individually, distinctly and personally, where if we are not in the frame of mind 
where repentance is being brought to God, where, where trust in the covenantal promises of the gospel are being held onto. When you come into church, you're not just here automatically, but you are thinking in your mind by being cleansed in the blood of Jesus and by knowing what is, what is my right in the gospel covenant, I can call on God to give me those blessings of sanctification, of being my focus, of being my help in time of need, of being the strength that I need in times of mercy, of being the dispenser of grace when I am in sin and tribulation. We need to be mentally engaged, spiritually ready and prepared in our relationship with God, which is done through the Holy Spirit. And then think of him as distinct, not just a shadow of the Father and the Son. He'll tag along automatically. Not the breeze that they leave as they walk past, but a distinct person, our helper. There is also a need for us to honor him as God. There is no honor due to God, the Father or the Son, that is not equally due to the Holy Spirit. As you walk with him, relate to him, engage with him, we do so as sinful man to holy, infinite, triune God, whose person, third person, the Holy Spirit, is given to us as a gift for our salvation. And in, in our last thought this morning, we need to think, in this reality that the Holy Spirit is given to sinful man, we have to realize and understand what great, great Great caverns have been, have been, have been, trend, have been uh, gone across. How, how great impossible feats have been done for God's Holy Spirit to not be near us, not be around us or even in our midst, but in us, with us, by our, within our own selves, we are told in the New Testament. Think, think of the, the spans that God must go to, the lengths that God must go to and traverse in His grace to bring sinful man to holy God. The, the problem is not distance. Don't think that heaven is so high and earth is so low geographically that there was a great effort in bringing us together. Now, the distinction between us and God is that we have sin, that ever since the Garden of Eden has, has eternally and infinitely separated us from the grace and love and blessing of God. There is no more walking with him as they did in the garden. There's no more blessing beneath him. Instead, as Ephesians will tell us, we're alienated from God through the ignorance of our minds. We, we are without God and without hope in the world. We are hopeless. And there's nothing we could ever do if we even wanted to do to bring ourselves back into the place of communion with God. No man wants to do that. Every man runs from God. Every man, woman, and child runs from God and loves to disobey God. But even if we wanted to return, we couldn't. We could not span that gap. But praise God for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one thing that could span the gap of infinite holiness of God and the destructive depravity of guilty man is the powerful and eternal blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he, truly God, became man, shed his blood in a full, final, and finished atonement which never needed to be repeated. Which, which was never like the, the lambs and the, of the, uh, and the lambs and the bulls and the goats. It was infinitely higher and more glorious than that, that the blood of Jesus would cleanse us and not just cleanse us, but as we are told, bring us near. So that now being washed, now being sanctified, 
Now being, being able to leave behind the guilt because our consciences have been cleaned by the Jesus Christ who offered himself according to the eternal spirit, Hebrews tells us, we can now have our home with God. God can make his home with us. This is the great covenantal promise of the Bible. That in, when all is said and done, when the redemption is fully and finally played out in its entirety, God will be with his people. He will be our God and we will be his people in every sense. Friends, if you're, if you're not yet a Christian, then this is true of you. You don't have the Holy Spirit. You're alienated from God. You are separated from him by your sin and will die and go to an eternal hell. But the grace of God is on offer this morning, not just to, to clear your balance and leave you on earth, but to clear your conscience, come to you, forgive you, adopt you, and live with you, within you, by his very third person, the Holy Spirit, who is person, God, and distinct. Let's pray. Father God, as the confessions teach us, it is right and appropriate and biblical to think about you in triunity to think about you as distinct Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet worship you in unity as our saving triune God. We thank you that the word has been so clear to us to reveal this to us. We thank you for Christian history that, is, that has teased these matters out and given us clarity. But Father God, above all of these, we thank you for your grace. Father, we thank you that you began salvation. You ordained your grace. You chose your people. You sent your son. We thank you that Lord Jesus Christ, that you willingly came in submission to your Father. You joyfully came to save your people from their sins. And that by dying and rising, we have a finished, final, complete atonement with which we can, we can put all of our faith in. And Lord God, in this very moment, if anybody believes in that, places their faith in that reality, the, the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, God himself in human flesh for our salvation, they will be saved just by believing that. But Holy Spirit, we know being equally God, it is your work to bring us to faith. It is your work to be able to bring new life into people who have dead souls. It is only you who can give a new heart where there is currently a heart that despises God's law and runs from it in every way that is despising the gospel of the Lord Jesus, that sees it as weakness and useless, and so they are indifferent. But Holy Spirit, knowing that you are God and knowing that you are sent of the Father and the Son to do this very work, we beg you, Lord God, that you would be in our midst to bring to new faith, bring to new life, bring as, to be new creations, those people who are separated from you, far from you, though they are sitting right here in the same pews as us. We pray that for our children who do not know you. We pray that for our loved ones who are not here. We pray that for the unconverted sitting right next to us who know themselves away from you. We pray this, Lord God, in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen.